The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everyone tonight. And welcome especially to all the new folks to Common Ground. There's not that much uh, interacting on Sunday evenings, but people are always invited before and after the program to introduce yourselves to other people in the community, especially those of you who've been around for a while. You might challenge yourselves and be on the lookout for someone who doesn't know anything or doesn't look like they know anything, and just say hi. I was saying this morning, it's you know it's changed a lot. Uh, Buddhist mindfulness, Buddhist meditation practice is now much more cool than it used to be. But still, it's a little strange to show up to a Buddhist meditation center for the first time, kind of figuring out what the scene is and how you're supposed to behave and where the shoes go and things like that. So it's nice if uh, new people meet friendly faces. See that you become more ordinary if you do the practice. We're not becoming extraordinary or extra weird, just more ordinary. And hopefully, more okay with the ordinary self we become. So we've been looking at this book, uh, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. Some people are reading along, don't feel like you have to. But it's following, this book by Joseph Goldstein is following a very well-known collection of teachings from the Buddha called the Satipatthana Sutta. Satipatthana means the ways of establishing mindfulness or the four foundations of mindfulness. Sometimes it's translated that way as well. And in this discourse, the Buddha talks about these four ways, these four places to establish this mindful presence. We should be mindful of the body. It's really useful, helpful to be mindful of the body. We should be mindful of feeling tone. That's what we talked about the last couple of weeks. And here, feeling tone has a very technical meaning where the mind the attention is tuned in to the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of whatever it is we're knowing in the moment. So it makes sense like right now. Is it possible for us to notice whether the experience of the body is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And it's the not knowing that means we're destined just to react to it. There you go. You know, when... When I'm feeling like I was just then with the cord wrapped around my leg, you know, it was sort of irritating. And if I was unaware of that, I would that natural conditioned response to get averse would just happen. My mind, my body, that would express the aversion. And there would be, not maybe huge, but there would be some discomfort, just some suffering, unnecessary suffering. Or if you're just feeling a natural joyful response being in the community, but you're unaware of it, then unbeknownst, you start to crave common ground. Or maybe I'll come back Wednesday night. you know, Or maybe I'll start a common ground right in my neighborhood. And then your mind goes off into building these castles because of the craving, because you're unaware of the simple reality that it's pleasant being here. So mindfulness allows us just to be aware. Well, it's really nice being here. And if we can include that experience, the pleasantness when it's pleasant and the unpleasantness when it's unpleasant, 
and the neutrality when it's neutral, then it undermines the deep reactive tendency of the mind. The Buddha might say something like, as much as anything, our mind is conditioned to react to feeling tone. In a way, it's the, it's the real key or the linchpin in terms of all the reactive patterns that we've been noticing in our lives. Whenever you see a, the mind reacting, if you have the wherewithal, ask yourself, what is the feeling tone right now? So instead of like, I really don't like being around this person, it'd be much more skillful in terms of liberating, uh, having some freedom in your life to know, okay, I really don't like being around this person. What is the feeling right here and now, being around this person? Oh, it feels like this. You know, oh, well, can that feeling that's right here, right now, can that be okay? Meaning, is it safe for me to relax and include that yucky feeling? So we're not trying to pretend it's not yucky. We're just noticing how liberating it is not to be afraid of unpleasantness when it's unpleasant, and not to be afraid of pleasantness, not to get tight around the pleasant when it's pleasant, and not to get tight around neutral when it's neutral. We get tight around neutral because we don't think it matters. So that's the second foundation of mindfulness. Be mindful of the body, be mindful of feeling, and then this third that I'm going to talk about tonight for the next couple of weeks, starting tonight for the next couple of weeks, is mindfulness of the mind. Now here, again, feeling is part of the mind. So the Buddha is talking about a particular way of knowing the mind. It's just sort of a, a general snapshot, like you could, as I mentioned in the guided sit, in any moment, the mind, like outside, it's sort of a particular weather system. And the question is, are we interested in enough, is the mind, the attention, I should say, steady enough that we can actually notice the subtlety of how the mind is? Because it's not actually, I mean, it's one thing to know that touching wood has this particular quality of hardness or pressure or smoothness that's there. That experience is a little bit more obvious, a little bit more concrete, but to ask the attention to know the mind, the mind's much more space-like, much more ephemeral. It's not so easy. You need the mind needs to be much more balanced and steady to just have a to be able to sense, to be sensitive to the qualities of the mind. A lot of times, you know, we, I don't feel anything, but that itself is a feeling, right? That's called numbness, if we're not feeling anything. Or whatever label you want, it's an actual feeling. So a lot of people say, when I look at the mind, I don't notice anything. Well, what's that like? You know, what is that experience of not noticing? Is it, is it the quality of superficiality in the mind? Or is it that the mind is very quiet? Those very different things. Or is it dull? Well, that's a third very different thing. You know, it could be that my mind's just dull and so it's not noticing anything. It could be that my mind has a lot of stillness in it and so it's empty for that reason. It could be that I just glanced and because my glance was so superficial, so short-term, I didn't notice anything, so I just assumed there's nothing there. 
So those are three ways to experience the mind like nothing's happening. But actually, they're three different minds. And this is such an interesting thing about the mind. It isn't one thing, just like the weather isn't one thing. Even within a day, it's been very different, even within the last 24-hour period, just the weather. And our mind is much more ephemeral than the weather is. Within one sit, one 30-minute, one 45-minute sit, the mind's... There's so many different realities to the mind. It goes through so many different transitions from this to that to something else, heavy states, light states, forgiveness, blaming, self-hatred, self-love, total fantasy, lost in you know some drama, clear as a bell. And the question is, is it possible for the mind to be aware of that? And you see this, it's, it's really, there's no way to take on this training of mindfulness of mind and at the same time think that it's bad when the mind is dull or it's good when the mind is clear. I mean, on some relative level, it makes sense that we you know, know the difference between what's a pleasant mind state and what's an unpleasant mind state. But what's important is to realize that the mind can be known. And it can be known in a continuous way. Now, of course, we get distracted, but then, just like we can come back to the awareness of the body sitting, or come back to the awareness of the breath moving in the body, we can come back to knowing the mind is like this. In many ways, in many systems of practice, this is the primary meditation object, mindfulness of mind. That's what we're cultivating all day long. And you can use some strategic questions during the day and also during your formal meditation time. How's the mind? I mean, something as simple as that. And it could be in the context of being aware of the breath. Remember, the mind is here whether you're aware of the breath or the body sitting or anything else. Because the mind's always here, just like the body's always here. It's always where? What's well, always here, here and now, right? It's the way it is. So there's never any distance from how the mind is. It's just a question of whether there is a knowingness that it's like this. That's the distinction between being a practitioner. A practitioner means that there's a knowingness that it's like this now, and a not a person not practicing means that they're, you know, they're awake in a sense, doing this, conscious of that, acting, reacting, but there's no knowing that it's like this. In a sense, the mind is lost in the activity. And this is how language can get funny, because sometimes we almost create a value around being lost in an activity, like getting absorbed in a novel, getting absorbed in a TV program, getting absorbed in riding a bike, or so many activities, knitting, cooking, and there's some real joy in that. But there's not much learning in that. So this is actually, in meditation terms, this is an important distinction between meditations and meditation techniques that aim the mind more towards that absorption, just getting absorbed in a mantra, prayer, chanting, a visualization, the breath. could be any 
number of things that the Buddha taught 40 different things to get absorbed in and to basically have the same experience that somebody who's really into knitting would get. I mean, you can get absorbed into knitting and get lost in it. I, maybe some of you caught this. There's a new a new program and one of the NPR, I don't know if it's Morning Edition or All Things Considered, where they, they're once a month or once a week, they're interviewing people about something that changed their life. I forget what they call it, but some big transition. And they interviewed the well-known actor, is it Ed Harris? Is that his name? Anybody catch that? It was maybe two days ago. Well, I was just on retreat, and I was just driving home, so I just must have heard it yesterday. It must have been yesterday in weekend edition, probably, driving home late in the afternoon. And uh, Ed Harris, some of you know, is a well-known actor, and... Uh, he was just talking about, you know, none of the great movies he's been in, but he was a night watchman in Oklahoma City as a young man. Nothing happened in his life. And he had done a few, he was a jock, evidently, an athlete in college. Um, but he did take one acting class when he was in college. And the local uh, theater company in Oklahoma City was doing Camelot. And his old professor was the director and asked if he wanted to audition. And he, he got the part of Arthur, um, King Arthur. So, big role. And big role, I mean, first big role for him. I think he had been in a couple plays, minor roles. And he talks about one night where he had that absorption. And uh, it was, you know, it's like the play started and then the play ended. And he was unaware of what was, the last, the, the next thing he knew, there was just the roar of the applause, everyone standing up, and the great, great pleasant feeling of maybe you would, he would sort of superficially interpret it as having done a good job. I feel really good of having done a good job. People like me. But probably the good feeling was much more about having been absorbed for, you know, an hour or whatever it was in that activity, whether it was knitting or acting or being mindful of your breath, or repeating a mantra, or prayer, or doing walking meditation. There's a lot of joy in disappearing. But that's not the emphasis of this practice. It's a really good training, and part of what we do is in that direction of absorption. But the, the deeper release comes from you know, from the joy and the steadiness you get from being more absorbed, more quiet, we actually use that more steady attention to look at things as they are. We actually want to see the mind as it is. It's like they say about legislature and making sausage. You don't really want to know how they do it. It's like that with the mind. We, we don't really want to know how our mind right now is continually constructing reality for us, constructing meaning, telling ourselves who I am and telling ourselves who everybody else is in relationship to who I am and whether I'm good or bad. Or We don't really want to see it. We feel a little um, self-conscious when somebody invites us to be mindful of the mind. It's like, should I really be looking like that? Famous scene from The Wizard of Oz. Probably most of you remember that scene when Dorothy first sees the the wizard, you know, and it's the big facade there, the big 
monstrosity with the smoke and flames, I think, even. And, but it's all, you know, it's just all constructed. But there's somebody behind the curtain, you know, the guy, the actual wizard operating. He's just an old guy. And Toto pulls the curtain, if you don't remember this scene. There's probably a few people in the room that haven't seen The Wizard of Oz. And the wizard goes through the loudspeaker and says, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And that's a little bit like when we look at the mind, you might notice some reactions like, oh, you don't need to look. Don't look, don't pay attention to this. You don't really want to see this. You don't really, it's not really important. It's unpleasant. <clears throat> so in order to take on mindfulness of the mind, we have to be prepared not to be easily dismissed by all the different defense systems the mind has to keep the mind unaware of the mind. So generally our mind is aimed outward. But actually, what we see, you know, like how I see myself, how I interpret you, how what I think about calm ground, it's all a reflection of my mind anyway so much. When I'm in a funk, the whole world looks like it looks when you're looking through a funk. When I'm really happy, the world looks differently. So we need to get interested in the coloring the mind is giving to everything. We have to start looking at the coloring itself. The filters, the attitudes, the moods, the tone, the mental qualities. And this is where, you know, the Buddhist teachings is a real, I mean, he's a real pro. This is what he did. He developed deep states of concentration, like I was talking about earlier, these states of absorption. Not as an end in themselves, although they're really nice, it's not an end. You want to use the nice feeling we get from putting down the world by knitting or by being mindful of the breath. You put down the world for a while, maybe at the beginning part of the sit, you even emphasize that kind of practice that we often do here for the first 10 or 15 minutes of a 40-minute sit. We might give a lot of heart, a lot of wholeheartedness to just being with the breath. Basically, using the awareness of the breath to put everything else down. I don't need to think about my kids. I don't need to think about Monday morning. I don't need to think about this or that. Just knowing the sensations of the breath coming in. Just feeling the touching at the nostrils. And then feeling the touching at the nostrils as the breath goes out. So we use these anchors as a way of putting everything down. And then when we put everything down to some degree, to whatever degree we do, don't judge yourself, whatever degree you've simplified the mind, that's to the mind's advantage. The mind is just less encumbered for that 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or however long you do this more formal concentration practice. But then that having put down part, all of the world, to some for some amount of time, then the mind feels the natural effect cause and effect. It feels purified. Because right? for a while, it hasn't been pushed around by all of its reactive patterns as much. So it feels more simple, more clean, more unburdened. Now this is the kind of the mind, the kind of mind, that can actually pay attention to the mind. It just has so much more natural stability, more natural clarity, more natural resilience, so that when the mind throws things at it, to kind of throw it off its path, 
doesn't get full. So you need that kind of mind. It's not enough, like from hearing a talk like this or reading something, to say, yeah, I'm going to start paying attention to the mind. I mean, you will. You'll learn. Even with a superficial consciousness, you'll learn some things just paying attention to the mind. But it won't go very deep. It's like in uh, the Buddha's teachings, they use this wonderful simile of a honed and heavy axe. If you want to cut down a big tree, you need a honed, a sharp, and a heavy axe. If you have an axe that's really, really sharp, that, you know, like a razor blade, weighs about, you know, a tenth of an ounce, you're not going to cut down a tree. No matter how sharp that razor blade is, it won't be easy to cut it down. Or if you have an axe with a lot of weight but no sharpness, you know, like a sledgehammer, you know, you're not going to cut that tree down. But if you combine a lot of sharpness, which is the wisdom piece, the investigation piece, with the concentration, with the settledness, the steadiness of the mind, then you can do some good work. So that's what you need. If you really want to do mindfulness of the mind, you you need to cultivate steadiness. In Buddhism, we emphasize like the first place to cultivate steadiness is we clean up our ethical lives. We start to live more harmoniously. We don't steal, you know, we don't intoxicate the mind much, if at all. You know, we our sexual relationships are by the book, you know, up front. If we have a committed relationship, we don't have sexual activities with other people. We don't undermine the uh, committed relationships that other people have because all of that disturbs our mind. When you go to bed at night, you know, like, if you're living, if you're a rascal and you go to bed at night, <laughs> that stuff reverberates. Like, am I going to get caught? Or is, this, is this person going to find out about this or that? Is life going to come back and bite me? Well, probably. It seems to be how it works. So we live in fear. Well, that's not a mind that can investigate the mind. So first we cultivate integrity and harmony in our life, and then we use activities, whether it's a formal meditative activity like mindfulness of the breath, or repeating some phrase in the mind like calm, ease. I mean, that's a mantra you could use. Or doing sort of mindful yoga, mindful Tai Chi, mindful movement uh, systems. But one way or another, or probably more likely several ways in life, like just walking from our car to our office could be a little absorption. So for that period of time, you're not a human being, you're not somebody who has this job, somebody who has a partner, somebody who doesn't have a partner but wants a partner, somebody who has a partner that wants to get rid of their partner. You're just the body walking. And you get that, you touch back into that simplicity, that steadiness, that balance. And then, the more you do that formally in your meditation, informally in different places in your life, then you can, then you've got the weight combined with the interest in the mind, like the mind being interested in the mind. Then you're going to start having insights about the mind, the nature of the mind. Otherwise, it's like, there are a lot of people who read a lot of books about Buddhism. They think about Buddhism and these teachings and other kind of similar systems that talk about the nature, the underlying nature of the mind. 
and they can talk for a long time, and they have a lot of interesting things to say, and some of it, some of the things they say might be quite useful, but they won't necessarily have any deep benefit from the interest they have in the mind. That's like having a lot of sharpness, the no weight, no steadiness of mind to actually see the mind itself. It's like, it's very interesting and useful on a superficial intellectual level to really understand that there's really no center anywhere. There may be this appearance of me here as a center, but when I look, you know, and philosophically speaking, and just in terms of physical science, we know there's not a center anywhere that can be seen. It's just different causes and conditions, internal, external, playing themselves out lawfully. So we can know that, but it's a whole other thing to actually see that, that that is the underlying nature of the mind through observation, through direct subjective observation of the mind, using the mind to know the mind, to really see its nature-like quality, no center, no fixed self, behind the whole thing. That's profoundly liberating to have even a vague glimpse of that directly in our experience. So keep this in mind that uh, before we can uh, do this mindfulness of mind, we need to settle down. We need to do the preliminary work. We need to get in shape, so to speak, right? Get the mind in shape to do this work of the mind knowing the mind, the mind investigating the mind. And then the next piece is once, you know, with whatever steadiness you have, it's not like you should wait to be mindful of the mind until you have steadiness because you're going to need to be mindful of the mind in order to get steadiness. Like if you're knitting and you keep worrying about is this person going to like the sweater I'm knitting, you're not going to get absorbed in the knitting. You're going to be caught in your worry. So you're not going to get that that experience of calming, tranquility. So you have to notice, oh, there's worry. Well, that's mindfulness of mind, isn't it? So we need mindfulness of mind in order to steady, to calm down. And then the calm helps to have a deeper mindfulness of the mind, to see more, to see what we haven't seen because the mind wasn't subtle enough. And then the next whole uh, sort of practice that helps us with this mindfulness of mind is we have to be fluent. And you probably know from your own life that any area of expertise you have, whether it's in construction or social work or raising children or being a lighting designer or whatever you might do in your life, you know, in order to really hold or sustain the competency, you need this vocabulary. It's like having terms, having labels for your experiences really helps the mind remember what it knows. The vocabulary isn't the same thing as the knowing. So like, I could have the word tranquility. Because sometimes there's tranquility in the mind. The word tranquility isn't the experience of tranquility. But it's it's like a file. And in that file, I put my actual memories the sort of fragrance of tranquility, the taste of tranquility there. So then, when that experience comes up again, I could say, tranquility? 
you know, and I have the the fragrance and I have the actual experience. Yeah, this is tranquility. Right? And that that label then of tranquility, how it gets a little bit clearer. I have a more clear sense that when the mind is this, like this, I call that tranquility. And it's like this. That's the important thing, is to know that tranquility is like this. And so the next sort of part, once you've settled down, once you have this actual interest in the mind, is to begin developing a vocabulary for your actual qualities that you're noticing in the mind. What is this quality? You can even ask the question, what is this? How is the mind doing now? What is the particular shape or quality that's dominant in the mind right now? Is it is there a dullness in the mind? Or, oh yeah, there's this. Well, what is that? Is it dullness? Is it boredom? Is it a, some kind of aversion? A board, uh, like, a, like pushing away? Not liking? Is it, oh, maybe it's tranquility. Maybe that heaviness actually is a negative. Maybe it's positive, like a, maybe it's settledness. So it's like that, you see how the, the different labels, and initially we're using, we don't really know what the word means. We're kind of figuring out, like, what is equanimity? Like, do you know what that experience of equanimity is? And what's the difference between equanimity and indifference? Right, because equanimity is a, a positive, in Buddhist terms, is a positive quality of the heart. It's actually related to love, equanimity. But often, you know, we think of equanimity, actually we mean more something like indifference, not caring. But that's that would be more in the world of aversion. That's a kind of aversion. Boredom is a kind of aversion. Not caring, indifferent, doesn't matter, don't like it, isn't meaningful. That's like yucky. That's averse. And over the next couple months, actually, we'll look at some of these maps because the fourth foundation, the Buddha is actually teaching these maps of the mind. The map, like of the five hindrances. Is there craving going on in the mind? Like, are you, is the mind, in a sense, energetically leaning forward to being at home and in bed with your hot drink and your favorite entertainment? Or, you know, is there aversion, like either reacting to what I'm saying, like, what does he know? Or, this is stupid. And then you could just notice that sort of aversive, pushing things away. So those, those are two useful vocabularies, right? Energetically craving, lusting, wanting, holding. Energetically averse, pushing away, drawing back, shrinking back. Another two really useful ones are restlessness and dullness. Just noticing which of those two. And remember, it's not about judging. Like, if there's dullness in the mind right now, are you responsible for that? Did you say, okay, bring in the dullness? No. It's there because of natural reasons, you know, natural causes and conditions that there is dullness. If there's restlessness, it's also there for reasons. So it's not about judging it, it's just, can the mind recognize how it is in the mind? And remember, because it's so easy to think that all we care about are the negative or the unwholesome or the unpleasant qualities of mind. In Buddhist practice, we're just as interested in the wholesome, pleasant, expanded qualities of mind. So, 
we should and will, you know, as we continue to practice, we'll have many, many labels for all the different qualities of pleasantness in the mind or wholesomeness in the mind. There's rapture, there's contentedness, there's peacefulness, there's stillness, there's impartiality, there's kind of boundless love, there's compassion. There's so many different qualities, and they have, you know, are pleasant, wholesome qualities. Like even the, this a wholesome interest. Well, what's this? Like a sense of wonder or awe about how life of the mind, life of the body, keeps presenting itself right here in the space of the present moment. So there's that sort of childlike, wow, this is my life. This is how it is now. That we can tap into. That's a wholesome quality. Or even just the um, the not forgetting itself. Just that very simple quality of the mind sustaining, like not losing the thread. There's, there's a real empowering quality of not losing the thread of this life experience as it unfolds. Not getting lost, falling into this story or that story. In, in, a, in a sense, in a real sense, disappearing from our life for a while as we get absorbed in some drama. But just that not forgetting itself is a wholesome, beautiful quality to be able to recognize. You could call that mindfulness. Like in a, in a more technical meaning, a definition of the word mindfulness is that not forgetting. It's sort of sustaining presence. No matter what comes and goes. So it's not like you're just knowing the same object moment by moment by moment. That whatever is predominant, whatever the mind is knowing, there's a knowingness about it. Like the mind is knowing that it's knowing. It's knowing that this is how it is now. It's not forgetting. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about this wonderful Vietnamese teacher, Buddhist monk, talks about noticing the non-toothaches in life. Like we tend not to notice. Like whatever good feeling there is in the body, we tend not to notice. We tend to notice like if there's any pain in the knee, or if we do have a toothache, or if we've got some food between two of our teeth, you know, we'll notice that, or a hangnail, but do we notice the non-problems? Because there's a space, like normally the problem would inhabit the space, like oh, i got to fix this, I don't like this. But when that problem isn't right in our face, then there's that open space of the non-toothache, the non-problem. <coughs> Can we notice that? Because that's a experience of the mind. That's like an open, expanded quality that sometimes gets clouded or filled filled with what we would call a problem. The mind gets contracted. Oh, yeah. Oh, what are we going to do about that? But then when that's not, the mind's not contracted, then what's left is something we normally don't notice. But it would be very useful to notice the space of the mind when it's not filled up by drama. So even something that subtle, like just the mind or the heart, you could use either word, that's not filled up with drama. Can we notice those moments during the day? Because it's not filled up with drama every single moment during the day. Clearly it is some of the moments, right? But there's probably, you know, moments aren't very long. 
So there's probably tens of thousands of moments in a typical person's day where the heart is relatively unbounded, open. But how many of those have we noticed today? You know, probably not too many. But why not? Well, we just haven't been trained to notice. The mind's just not subtle enough and interested, and it hasn't even occurred to a lot of us to notice whether the mind is bound up or unbound. And even when our mind is bound up, and it's pretty obvious, we may notice it for a fraction of a second before we get completely lost in the content. And then we're not aware that the heart is bound up. We're thinking about the problem. But there's no knowingness that, oh yeah, it's all bound up. This heart, this mind, and the body, it's all entangled, and there's trouble right here in this body and mind. We don't have that knowingness. We're just, we get lost. So we're missing both the experience of openness, or the mind, heart, unbounded, untroubled, and we're also missing the moments when the mind is troubled because we're thinking about the trouble. We're lost in the content of the trouble. And we don't have that simple presence with, oh yeah, this is what it's like when the mind is troubled. <coughs> the Buddha says, one of the, this is a great quote, there is no fire like lust, no grip like anger, and no net like delusion. So these are the negative. Now you could just do the opposite, right? We could think of there's no coolness like contentedness, right? That beautiful, cool feeling of a heart that doesn't need things to be other than they are. And instead of grip like anger, we could say there's no release of the heart like love. Real love, not I love you or I, I would love a hamburger. But, but real love is this feeling of uh, of showing up. You know, it's like pure presence is another way to talk about love because it's an including of life. So the heart's release when we're when love predominates, the heart isn't looking for anything else because it's totally into including what is. So the heart loses its grip. So there's no release like non-anger or love, and no, instead of no net like delusion, so what's the opposite? That's that open space, right? When the mind's entangled in some problem, that's what we call delusion. The mind is deluded in thinking that this drama that I've just constructed for myself, like I'm going to die, or I won't have enough money for retirement, or does this person like me, or what am I going to do about this knee pain, or global warming, or fill in the blank. That's the net of delusion, because the construction of the mind and the drama, and it's it, the mind feels completely justified in being tight, as if being tight has some function, other than just making the body and mind tight. It doesn't. It's just unnecessary tightness. So that net of delusion can be replaced with a very open space. Now, in that open space, there can be the thought, there is global warming, or there may be global warming, or I don't know what we're going to do about global warming. But the mind doesn't get entangled with it. It just responds. It just does the next thing. 
And this is what we'll be digging into for the next several weeks. So at home, in your practice, just start looking at the mind. Remember what I said about, like, if you really are serious about this practice, then develop the precepts of non-harming, living more harmoniously, with more integrity, and find the ways your mind likes to get absorbed, to drop the whole world of problems of this and that, of past and future, and just do one thing 100%, so your mind becomes uh, purified in those experiences where you practice that absorption, whether it's mindfulness of breathing for part of your meditation time, or other activities that you can turn into practices of absorption where you put down the world for a while. And then, develop this vocabulary. And just start on your own. And if you keep coming, you'll get the sort of Buddhist vocabulary, and then you can just start making the connection between, oh yeah, I was calling tranquility this word. So don't worry about sort of mastering the Buddhist vocabulary immediately. Just start getting interested in the different qualities that tend to be regular visitors to your mind, that color your mind in different ways. And get your top ten wholesome list and your top ten unwholesome list. Unwholesome um, qualities of mind that tend to color your mind and the top ten wholesome qualities that you catch from time to time. Don't assume there are no wholesome qualities that color your mind because that's an unwholesome quality coloring your mind. It's called doubt. Oh, that's just doubt. Like, doubt that everybody else, you know, has wholesome qualities but me. Or whatever it might be. Some sort of negative view of self-hatred not being good enough. But I want to leave it here so we have time to hear from people in the group tonight. You probably, just naturally, even before you've ever heard the word Buddhism, people, unless you're completely overwhelmed by life, people are naturally learning about the mind. So what have you learned about the qualities of your mind that appear from time to time, wholesome and unwholesome? What have you learned in your years of life about the mind? To share any questions that you have about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? Yeah, April. Um, I'm going to share an experience I had last Saturday. Um, my mind, um, I usually wake up in the morning and my mind is pretty dang messy. Um, that's kind of typically when I, I can feel that in the morning. I woke up that um, Saturday and I had a lot of, there was fear and anxiety, um, worry and some self-hatred going on in my mind. And that night I had... Um, so I just said one thing? Yeah. And there was a knowingness. Because otherwise you wouldn't know. No, I, I knew. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but that, that knowingness was something very wholesome, even though what it was knowing might have been unpleasant and maybe not wholesome. But I just wanted to make sure that... Yeah, I definitely knew it. Um, and so part of my practice is that I send an email to a trusted friend in the morning of what my intention is for the day. And my intention that day was to be with what is and to show up in some sort of loving way. I don't remember my exact words, but it was something like that. And that night we were entertaining friends, and that was partly why I knew I was being triggered in this place of fear, was I hadn't seen these people in a long time, and I wasn't um, certain that I was going to live up to some expectations that I had put for myself in years past. And so I sent this email, and then I went and meditated. 
And immediately in my mind, all these thoughts were there. Like I was, I could name them. I, I, I was using the RAIN uh, mm-hmm. model that you've given in the past, Mark. And after I got done with the sit, I didn't feel any better. <laughs> I was kind of pissed about it. <laughs> um, I was averse to that meditation was not fixing my problem. Yeah. And um, so <coughs> I went to the grocery store, and I'll just say I have I have a food obsession, and so in my mind were these unwholesome qualities. And I got to the grocery store and I ate a sample, which is not part of my daily. I don't do that with food, and it made my mind go even more um, obsessive. And I got right back into that place of self hatred. Now. In my past, I would have used that a moment to binge on food because I didn't want to feel any of that unpleasant experience. And um, so I went home and I had to cook dinner. And here I am in this place of just ick. And what popped in my head was words that you use often, which is, can this be okay? And although I still had all these feelings happening, there was a sense of space where I knew that if I chose that response, my, my reactive habitual behavior to eat so that I would feel these feelings, it was going to make it worse. And so that's the piece of gratitude. I think that was the piece of worldly desires that came forth, which was, oh, even though all these things were in my mind, there was enough space to respond and choose to respond in a way that was actually healthy. And um, we ended up having a great time that night. Yeah, and and the amazing thing is that, and April is sharing, is that uh, how something that was so unpleasant ends up being the ground for real transformation and insight. And this is the thing, we don't want to be afraid of difficult states arising because they are the ground for so much insight. It's not pleasant. Nobody, has I, have I or anybody said, this path is really pleasant? I've never said that. It isn't. I mean, there are times when the mind settles down that it's pleasant. That's the absorption piece. It's really nice. But those are times that come and go. They're not permanent, those pleasant states that come in meditation or just in daily life. But, this unpleasant experience that we stay with, we find the heart that isn't afraid of it. The space of the mind, the space of wisdom, that isn't afraid when difficult experience is difficult, when negative conditioned patterns of mind have been triggered and are there, and instead of acting them out, we're just aware that they're there. We discover a space of mind that's not afraid to be there. And that's liberating. It's profoundly liberating. And that's where the practice really leads. And it's different than looking for a pleasant, like a heaven, to disappear in. This is not that path where we're looking for a pleasant place to disappear. There are a lot of spiritual systems that are one way or another are about looking for a really good escape. And some of those escapes are relatively long. I mean, they're resonant. They last for a while. But they all end. So... It's okay to pursue them, but don't think that they're going to be some final solution. 
So use them skillfully, those ways that you can transform, abandon, leave behind the messiness, go to some beautiful place. Use them skillfully, but don't assume that it's going to be an end because you'll get attached. And then you'll ruin it, for one, and you won't learn anything. So in this practice, we take advantage of those places where we can get some tranquility, some peaceful states, and then we do exactly what April did. You learn how to hang out right in the middle of the messiness and discover that there's some space that allows us to hang out right in the middle of the messiness. And that however bad it was and challenging it was for her to hang out there, it ceased, right? She didn't have to binge in order for it to cease. Whatever that negative, unpleasant mind state was, it ended on its own. This is true with even really simple things, any kind of craving we have. Like, you, let's say you have some great ice cream at home in your freezer. Now that it's warmer. <laughs> this actually works. I could have said this two weeks ago. But for me, I can say it tonight. Not that I have ice cream. But anyway, or something that you really like. And let's say it's really there and it would really be okay for you to have it. Like it wouldn't be some risk to your health. But you could just say, well, let's just do an experiment. You know, there is this craving, this desire to do this thing, to watch this program, to eat this food, to do whatever. But I, instead, I'm just going to observe the craving and the unpleasantness of the craving, and I'm going to notice that it will cease without me having to gratify that desire. We've had so many desires that haven't been gratified, and they have all ceased. Thankfully, right? Can you imagine if every single craving we've had that we haven't satisfied were still there, kind of reverberating in the heart and mind? We would we'd be dead for sure. <laughs> and they would have killed us because craving, you know, the lusting, wanting, it's a really stressful mind state, heart state to have. Thanks so much, April, for sharing that part of your life with us and letting us learn from it. Other thoughts that come to mind? Uh, yeah, say your name again. Mike. Mike. So I'm in a creative process right now, um, and things are going really, really well, and they're going so well in this collaboration that's going on that I, I find that I'm like worried I'm going to choke. Yeah. And, I, and I, I can find myself in this, in the flow in that absorption. And it's like, the second I know that I'm in the absorption, stop. Yeah. So here, what's the trigger? So maybe even in hindsight, you'll be able to figure this out right now. So you're in the flow. What's the feeling tone of the flow? The feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Well, it's definitely pleasant. Yeah. Okay. But are you aware that it's pleasant? Because that's often, see, this is why the Buddha says it's really important to know the feeling tone. Because what happens when the pleasantness of the flow arises, but the mind is unaware of it? What habit of mind happens? I want this. This is great. Now, you're not doing it. There isn't anybody doing it. That is just a conditioned response. And... When you really want something, can you still be in the flow and really want something? No. So, of course, you pop right out of it, just as you said. So, the key is now, in, now you, because you know what's going on, 
you resolve in your mind that when you enter this flow state, when you're kind of in the groove and things are flowing and life is great, that you've resolved now to be aware of the pleasantness. So it's almost like a little mindfulness spell will go off in the mind because you're making the strong intention in your mind and you're going to need to resolve this many times before it actually happens. You want to keep remembering how useful it would be to be aware, to see clearly the pleasantness of the flow. That won't, being aware of the pleasantness won't disturb the flow. It will amplify it. Because remember, being aware of the pleasantness is not craving it. It's opening to it. That's what mindfulness of pleasantness means. It's like being undefended. Oh, pleasantness is like this. Can this be okay? Meaning, is there any reason to get tight? No, I don't have to get tight. I can be completely open, undefended, relaxed with the pleasantness of the flow. That will support it. It will end anyway, but it will last longer. And you'll, more importantly than that it lasts longer, is that the mind will realize something really deeply. In the same way that April realized that no matter how yucky it got, she could just be there with it. You're going to realize no matter how pleasant it gets, the heart doesn't need to react. doesn't need to get desirous. And that's the thing, because if you start to construct a sense of a self who has this forever, you're going to grab it. So... But you're, you're separating yourself from it. As soon as you construct a somebody who could really use this for the rest of his life, this nice flow of feeling, you're, you're, you're contaminating it with neurotic activity, and it will go away very quickly. So we learn a lot from strong, pleasant, and strong, unpleasant experiences. Thanks, Mike, for bringing that up. It's really good to have that in counterpart to what April was saying earlier. We need to leave it here. It's almost 8.30, so we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Aware of the body and aware of the mind. Just letting the body-mind unfold. And perhaps tuning into some gratitude for these wise teachings from the Buddha and all the folks from the time of the Buddha on down in their busy lives doing this practice, realizing some real benefit from it, sharing it as best they could. And in this way, one generation after another, now we're the recipients of these practical and wise teachings. Now it's our turn in our busy lives, as best we can, put these teachings into practice, to benefit, to set in motion, to share the teachings in a way that's useful for other people, formally, informally, just modeling, being wise and compassionate. And may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.